1: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah,
2: we don't know
1: Why is so far? Like, it sounds so
0: simple. They had no idea. But now the data's... Pe- I find this... Not only
3: refreshing but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature.
0: Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week on the show we're looking at the artificial intelligence recreating our sense of place and liquid crystals that can deliver
1: cargo. Plus a first-hand account of dealing with depression as an academic. This is the Nature Podcast for the 10th of May 2018. I'm Adam Nevy.
0: And I'm Shamini Bandel. Back in 2014, the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine was granted for the discovery of cells which constitute a positioning system in the brain. Some of the key cells in question are called grid cells, special neurons which activate depending on where an animal is. It's sort of like an internal mental map created by multiple grid cells firing in geometric grid like patterns. Despite winning a Nobel Prize, there's still a lot we don't know about this neural GPS, and grid cells can be tricky to study experimentally. Now, neuroscientists from University College London, or UCL, have teamed up with machine learning experts at Google-owned company DeepMind. They wanted to see if artificial neural networks could help reveal more about how mammals navigate. I decided to set out for UCL to find out more. Today, I'm off to see Caswell Barry at UCL. Now, UCL happens to be just down the road from the nature offices. So here I am, walking down Euston Road, hoping I can find my way to his department. Aha, this looks like it. Hiya. Hiya. Hey. hey, nice to meet you. Try and get through the labyrinth of UCL. So I've just um, made my way here in, in sort of mostly a straight line with a, a few detours yeah. from the yeah. nature offices. Um, so what kind of things are, are going on in my brain while I'm trying to find this place?
4: So we know quite a lot about how the brain navigates. It has sort of multiple strategies and multiple different types of brain cell. So very broadly, you could divide the strategies into route-based, where you know a sequence of actions that will get you somewhere and you can follow them, or sort of map-based, where maybe you want to take a route that you haven't followed exactly before, but you know where these places you're going from and to are relative to each other. And so if you followed a a straight-line route to UCL, then you're almost certainly using a a map-based strategy. And that's exactly what we think uh, grid cells and their cousins' place cells are important for. They're essentially the brain's way of representing space. And once you've got a representation of space, you can use it a bit like a map to plan routes Uh, between places we've not gone that route before or maybe take a shortcut or work around something if there's a barrier to the way you want to get through. So it's a sort of flexible navigational strategy and that's presumably what you were doing.
0: And so we've known about grid cells and and that particular element of of navigation for a while and the research got a Nobel Prize in in 2014 but um, that doesn't mean we necessarily know everything about it so you, you still want to sort of dig into how it works a bit more.
4: What most people agree on is that grid cells look like they're important for path integration so that is updating where you think you are based on how you're moving so if you know you're somewhere and you move 10 feet to the north then you know you're somewhere else. But equally, um, there's sort of an emerging idea that you can do more with grid cells. If they really do function like the sort of backbone of a map, then actually you can use them to do things like plan direct routes. And so that's called vector-based navigation. But that was still to be proven. It's hard to prove experimentally precisely because... In an animal brain, you can't just go in and sort of shut down the grid cells or change what they're doing. That's one of the things we wanted to use artificial agents to test here.
0: And that's where you've been working with the, the people at DeepMind who work on neural networks and machine learning.
4: Yes, exactly. So this was sort of very much a, a collaboration in several ways. It was a collaboration between UCL and DeepMind, but equally it was a, effectively a collaboration between neuroscientists and machine learning people.
0: And in this case, you were interested in a specific problem, tasks that you think grid cells are responsible for. So you wondered, how, how will AI cope with those?
4: Yes, exactly. So in the first instance, we um, set the network, the task of performing path integration. So we essentially told it where it was to start with. We told it how it was moving, and we asked it to predict where it was, which is something we think grid cells are very important for in the brain. And so remarkably, we found that the network could learn to do this. And actually, the strategy employed ultimately developed uh, representations that were startlingly like grid cells. They shared the same hexagonal firing patterns, they shared similar ranges of scales, so grid cells in animals come in multiple scales. So it really was a sort of very striking and uh, remarkable convergence of form and function.
0: And the reason you're interested in this is because of the brain, You're you're a neuroscientist, so what did this machine then tell you about the way that the brain is working?
4: Unlike a an animal brain it's very easy to sort of go in and access you know what is any given neuron in this artificial agent doing at a given time and also we potentially have direct control over them so one of the things we did to understand what advantage the grid cells had inferred on it was we asked it to navigate but then we could silence some of the grid cells and we could then easily test you know what can't it do and so it's a very sort of powerful test bed for doing um something that you would traditionally have done in neuroscientific experiments, but now we're doing it in this sort of artificial model.
0: And how, how good is this program at navigating a maze, say?
4: Uh, it's better than humans, so one of the things we did was um, test in the same set of environments how well a professional games player could perform the same task. So ultimately the task is that you start off at some location, you find your way around, you find a goal, then you get teleported somewhere new and you have to find your way back to the goal. And so the um, artificial agent is better than the professional games player, who is considerably better than me, I'd imagine.
0: And aside from uh, helping you sort of understand the neuroscience of it, is this machine that's better at navigating mazes than humans, uh, is that going to be useful at all? Uh,
4: this agent is very good at navigating, uh, certainly in sort of changeable complex worlds. And so... Clearly there are uses for things like that, you know, if you any point you have sort of autonomous vehicles or things that need to find their way around complex environments, then an approach like this, essentially borrowed from the mammalian brain, might prove to be quite effective. Of course there are scenarios where it wouldn't be, so if you just have to follow the same route day in, day out, then actually grid cells are much less useful, you might want a, a path-based strategy.
0: And so, do you do you think this is a sort of field, neuroscience, machine learning combo field that's that's going to be sort of growing from now on?
4: Uh, yes, I do. I'm very hopeful that uh, maybe we should call it uh, neuro AI. But there's definitely mutual benefits to be had on the machine learning side of things. Then. Uh, demonstrably taking things that we know about how the brain solves problems is really useful and can be incorporated into machine learning approaches and makes those approaches uh, more robust and more flexible. But equally, we're starting to see sort of information flow back the other way now, so that understanding how machine learning approaches solve a particular problem is starting to tell us a lot about how the brain might have solved the same sorts of problems. And that's potentially very powerful in a, a new way of doing neuroscience.
0: That was Caswell Barry of University College London. You can find his paper and a news and views article at nature.com forward slash nature. And if you want to know about some previous work DeepMind has done with neural networks, you can head on over to YouTube and search for our film, The Computer That Mastered Go. Plus, there'll be more on artificial intelligence at the end of the show. Physicists are hoping AI can help piece together particle collisions at the Large Hadron Collider. That's in the news chat along with concerns about a bear hunt in America.
1: It's Mental Health Awareness Month in the US and Mental Health Awareness Week here in the UK. Mental health problems affect many around the world. In England, for example, it's estimated that one in six people experienced a common mental health problem in the past week, and the stresses of research can have particular impacts on mental well-being. So up next, we have a very personal story about the challenges of mental health in academia. Some listeners may find this account difficult, so please use your own discretion.
3: Yeah, so so I'm uh, Dave Ray. I'm a, a professor of uh, carb management at the University of Edinburgh. For this week in Nature, I written about I written about depression, but my my own depression and. It's one of the hardest things I've ever had to write um, because we write obviously research papers and things like that a lot but writing something so personal has been difficult and it's it's really been something that I've been looking to articulate certainly for myself if no one else in terms of um, uh, what happened you know how I felt but also how other people, people around me helped me deal with depression um, and actually uh, helped me overcome it. My PhD was really when, um, when I encountered really deep depression and I, I really honestly didn't have much of a clue of what I was doing at the start of my PhD. I, I went into it with eyes wide shut um, and quite quickly started panicking that you know I didn't know what I was doing and everyone else did. I was just scared to admit that I was I was failing, that I didn't understand uh, what to do, that you know that things were going wrong. It felt like everything was was closing in. So it was it was one of those things where when I was thinking through how the next day was going to go, how the next week or the month was going, uh, it all just felt undoable. You know, so so I just felt. Um, like every option open to me was, was closed off, that everything was, was going wrong, that it was out of control. So I put on increasingly this facade of it was all alright and this kind of mask uh, to cover that up because it was um, just turmoil inside. The depth of my depression, I think, um, got so bad because, you know, I didn't talk to anyone. And the saving grace. Was, was really um, was my colleagues around me, and they, they didn't even know it, but just their their kind of um, support, you know, just their warmth. Um, there was there was one particular guy uh, called Paul, and I, I really remember it, even though it's twenty years ago. I was like a like an eggshell. I was so fragile. If I think if someone had said boo, I would have just collapsed in tears. And this guy Paul um, had clearly just you know, he, he was chatting with everyone, but he clearly seen in me that, you know, there was something not right. And he just came up and he he kind of, he just had a chat, he, you know, are you all, you know, Chetel was all right. His, his warmth that day just made the difference between my eggshell cracking and actually it's starting to get stronger. And if, and if I was giving advice uh, back to my, my, my 20 odd year old self, it would be um just to talk to to someone about it not to hide it uh to you know to to remember this is this is an illness what i've realized from talking to people and actually breaking through that is that it's been a huge help actually speaking out it's something which has a stigma associated with it still i think um and the more we talk about it the more we're aware of it that it's you know um it could be any of our colleagues and our friends, and uh, they, you know, one of the most important things is that they need to know they can speak about it uh, without fear of, of, of ridicule, without fear of um, you know, kind of uh, being ostracised. Mental illness is with us; it's very common. Depression, as part of that, is also common. It affects academics more than most, actually, based on the studies that have been done. People need to know they can speak. About their mental illness, just like they would their physical illness, uh, without fear of that kind of stigma. I do reflect on how I was as a, a PhD student and as a postdoc in terms of what I would have, what would have worked well for me, and and try and implement that for for my PhDs, postdocs, and, and, and staff. For me, it it has been learning to listen, and actually um, one of the things. We always do a standard uh, with, with all, all, of, all of my team uh, and all of my students. Is we talk about them, uh, and often it is just that you know, um, how are you feeling? How are things? You know, um, and, and that's really valuable, I think, just in terms of that uh, feeling of community, feeling like uh, we all care about each other. I feel not a hundred percent secure. In, 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 being public about my own depression. I still have anxiety that people will think less of me, but, um, you know, I feel, I feel like, uh, it's, it's worth doing, um, just to, if it helps other folk around the world with their PhD students or other academics think, um, yeah, I'm pleased Dave did that, that kind of chimes with, um, how I feel sometimes. And that, you know, that gives some impetus for them to to maybe speak to someone, to speak to a colleague, to speak to a therapist, whoever, uh, if if it helps um, in that little way, then, then that would be wonderful.
1: That was Dave Ray, who's based at the University of Edinburgh here in the UK. For more about Dave's experiences, have a look at his comment piece out this week, aptly titled, You Are Not Alone. What's more, Nature is running a three-part series on mental health in academia, the second part of which is out this week. Find this and Dave's comment at go.nature.com forward slash wellbeing. And if you are having difficulties, Nature has a page detailing a number of ways you can seek support. Just head to the Mental Health Collection go.nature.com forward slash wellbeing and click on the support tab. We'll also tweet a link to it from At Nature Podcast.
0: Still to come, liquid crystals that can deliver tiny cargo on demand. But first, it's time for the research highlights with Noah Baker.
2: First up, bats keep quiet to avoid rivals. Many bats find their way around with echolocation, making calls and listening to how the sound bounces back. But when researchers listened into to the echolocation of hoary bats in California, they found that in some situations, bats made much quieter calls or no calls at all. What's more, they were very interested in a speaker playing echolocation sounds. The researchers suggest that by keeping quiet, the bats are hoping to avoid being heard and attacked by rival bats. Locate that paper in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Researchers have created a lightweight, flexible laser. It takes the form of a polymer membrane less than a micrometre thick, which can be affixed to all kinds of things, from banknotes to contact lenses. Engineers could already make stretchy, bendable LEDs, but typically early polymer lasers were rigid and bulky. The new polymer laser is powered by an external source and can be tuned to emit light in a unique set of wavelengths. The researchers say that this could allow the creation of barcode-like laser tags, which could be used to make banknotes that are harder to counterfeit or to label sensitive official documents. You can scan through that paper at Nature Communications.
0: If you've ever pressed down hard on the screen of your smartphone or laptop, you'll have noticed the funny rippling pattern it makes under your finger. What you're seeing is the flowing of liquid crystals, a material that, as the name suggests, combines the properties of liquids and solid crystals. Now, researchers have found another clever use for liquid crystals, tiny cargo delivery systems. Reporter Anand Jagatia spoke to Professor Nicholas Abbott from the University of Wisconsin about the research.
5: So liquid crystals, probably most people are familiar with them, they're they're in our smartphone screens, calculators, but what actually are they and what properties do they have?
6: Liquid crystal, it's a a phase
5: of matter, and so we're all familiar with things like gases,
6: liquids, and crystalline solids, and so liquid crystal is yet another state of matter. So it flows like a liquid, and then uh, like a crystal, the molecules, although they're mobile, they are ordered Uh, relative to each other over very long distances.
5: In this paper, you've managed to manipulate liquid crystals in a way that lets you introduce and trap really tiny amounts of cargo inside them.
6: Yeah, so uh, a general characteristic of a liquid crystal is that um, it's very uh, sensitive and responsive to its environment. And so we've been using them as a, a type of sensor. What we've shown more recently is that you can also use the liquid crystal to um, provide a, uh, a response. And so you can uh, release chemical species in response to a whole range of stimuli. And they can be physical stimuli as well as uh, chemical and biological stimuli.
5: What actually happens to the liquid crystals in response to these stimuli that makes them kind of release their cargo? It's an
6: elastic material. And so just like you can store energy in stretching a rubber band, we can store energy in a, a stretched or strained state of the liquid crystal. And so what we're doing is we're designing liquid crystalline systems that will um, eject these microcargo sort of by uh, pinging them out a bit like uh, launching something using a rubber band.
5: One of the setups that you managed to create was cargo that was released in response to a touch from a human finger and I think it was responding to the heat, is that right?
6: That's right. And so uh, the sort of the idea is that if somebody uh, touches the material it will release some uh, chemical content from its interior and that could be, for example, antiseptic agent. So if you want sort of a self-sterilizing
5: material Oh, so maybe surfaces and worktops in, in healthcare environments and things like that.
6: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Or, you know, things like touchscreens.
5: Yeah, I was going to say, I've got so many smudges on my touchscreen right now. Could you, <laughs> could you create something that's every time I touch it, it'll just clean itself?
6: Uh, yeah, and in fact, I, I know that there are companies uh, who work on creating touchscreens that will release chemical species to clean the touchscreen.
5: Well, fingers crossed. Um the, the next application that, that you talk about in the paper, which is I think it, it really fascinating, is creating a liquid crystal that can store antibiotics, so that's the microcargo, and it releases them in the presence of bacteria. Can you tell us more about that? In all past
6: examples, the uh, materials have, have leached the antimicrobial agent um, continuously.
5: So they're just kind of constantly releasing a steady stream of of antibacterial agent.
6: That's right. That's right. And so um, that has many disadvantages. And one is that um, it can lead to the resistance of the organisms to those agents. uh, But also uh, it leads to a relatively short lifetime because you exhaust the supply. So what we were able to show is that we can uh, design microcargo that incorporate the antibacterial agent And so when the microorganisms move past the surface of the liquid crystal, the mechanical forces associated with the motion of the microorganism trigger the release of the antibacterial agent.
5: So if if you imagine, I don't know, like a bacterium like E. coli swimming along with its little tail, it's these tiny forces that are influencing the liquid crystal.
6: That is right. That's correct. So it's only in the presence of the uh, living bacteria that, the antibacterial agents will be released. Uh, so it's a self-regulating
5: release. So it, it seems like you've been able to create these materials that can respond potentially to quite a wide range of triggers, m- movement, heat, um, electric fields, and potentially can be used to release lots of different kinds of cargo. So where do you see this kind of this kind of technology going in the future? Actually,
6: inside the body, there are all sorts of mechanical forces which are operating and things like blood flow can transmit mechanical forces. And so I think there are lots of exciting opportunities to uh, create delivery systems that can be used to deliver drugs in vivo.
0: That was Nicholas Abbott from the University of Wisconsin talking to Anand Jagatia. And you can see video of the liquid crystal cargo release in the paper's supplementary material at nature.com forward slash nature.
1: Finally this week, it's the news chat. And after a year away on maternity leave, Chief News and Features Editor Celeste Beaver returns to the studio. Hi, Celeste.
7: Hi, Adam. Really good to be back.
1: Now, first up, we have a story about Bears under threat in America. Now, what are they actually under threat from in this story?
7: They're under threat from hunting. The story's about grizzly bears and specifically about a um, proposal from the state of Wyoming, which is one of the states that hosts Yellowstone National Park, and... The state has proposed allowing a hunt of grizzlies to go ahead, which is something that hasn't been allowed for a long time, and follows in the wake of the federal government um, taking grizzly bears off the list of endangered species last year.
1: So if they're no longer endangered, that. Seems like it would be more okay for them to be hunted, right?
7: Some of the critics of the um, proposed hunt say that the methods to take them off the list have some issues um, and they would contest that these this species really is um, established and safe enough to hunt now. So, for example, um, there's questions of how the data... Was collected. The, the the methods have changed, and um, critics of the hunt say that means that the estimates aren't right. Um, there's also assumptions about females and how long they continue to reproduce for, and um, the the method was based on the assumption that females will continue to reproduce. But critics say that they their reproduction falls off quite dramatically as they get older.
1: What are the details of the actual hunt that uh, that has been proposed?
7: So the hunt would involve 24 bears in total, 12 in an area immediately surrounding the Yellowstone Park that's under monitoring and a further 12 in a wider area that's still counted as the Yellowstone ecosystem.
1: And how does that number compare to the number of grizzly bears at least believed to be in Yellowstone National Park?
7: The number believed there is around 700
1: So what would be the effects on this bear population of removing this number of bears through hunting?
7: Critics of the planned hunt say that in addition to the bears killed in the hunt, any evaluation of the proposal should also take into account bears that are going to die anyway from other causes. In 2017, 56 died of natural causes or conflicts with people, for example. And so if that happened again... This year, that could be 80 bears altogether. And then that doesn't include knock-on effects of killing females who can carry up to four cubs.
1: And it hasn't been decided that this hunt will go ahead yet. But it seems some some people are concerned that it probably will.
7: So there's going to be a vote on the 23rd of May. The proposal's been up for public comments So we'll see. But it does seem that the state of Wyoming is quite determined to um, go ahead with it.
1: Now, our second story this week is looking at the Large Hadron Collider. And the LHC is looking to artificial intelligence to solve quite a tricky problem. What is this problem that they're hoping AI can solve
7: So can I just first of all say that I love this story because it brings together two scientifically rich and interesting topics, which is AI and the LHC, and two of my personal favourite sort of things that we report on. Um, So just to to throw that out there, Um, and yeah, the issue at the LHC, which is the Large Hadron Collider, the big world's biggest particle accelerator, um, which is situated at CERN, um, is that they in the coming decade they're going to have. 20 times more um, particle collisions going on which will produce a huge amount more data which they're going to have to sift through to find kind of the interesting collisions and sift those out from the, the noise of the background data.
1: And how are they actually sifting through that data at the moment and why won't that work going forwards?
7: Right now the way it works is they get a sort of mess of everything that's being produced in the collider and the goal is to use that to retrace the tracks that various particles took through the collider um, and they're using pattern recognition algorithms to retrace those tracks right now so it's already being automated but given the massive increase in volume those algorithms are basically too slow and so The idea is, or lots of physicists suspect, that if they set um, a technique called machine learning, which is kind of the hottest thing in AI right now, um, and and set set that to work on this problem instead of the pattern recognition algorithms, that those AI algorithms would be much, much faster and, and more productive at sifting through these collisions and coming up with the good stuff.
1: But they haven't just hired a really good developer or something like that. They've actually laid out a competition.
7: Yeah, that's right. Um, And the organisers of the competition have uh, made public a bunch of simulated data and and challenged software developers to uh, write a programme that can then retrace the tracks from that simulated data. And because they've um, created that data, they sort of have the actual answers of those tracks And they've added in some cash prizes. So a um, coder could win up to $12,000 if their algorithm is the best at reconstructing these tracks.
1: And there have been uh, previous artificial intelligence competitions, right? And including one that was sort of searching for the Higgs boson.
7: This was after the Higgs boson was actually found at the LHC, but it was a kind of way to re-find it um, just using uh, these kind of algorithms. And... That was really sort of a sexy competition because the Higgs boson created such a kind of news wave, you know, across the world, not just in science circles, but actually that challenge was much easier. So what the um, coders are being challenged to do with this is a much harder problem, which just makes it more exciting.
1: Celeste, thank you for joining us once again. And for more on both those news stories, head over to nature.com forward slash news.
0: That's all for this week, but make sure to check out the Nature Video Channel, where we're using puppetry to tell the story of an evolutionary trap that caught out an unsuspecting butterfly. That's at youtube.com forward slash Nature Video Channel. I'm Sharmini Bundel.
1: And I'm Adam Levy.